Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. My next guest in the Bravery Academy today is Dr. Stacey Sims. She's an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist, and she's on a mission to revolutionize the way that women look after their bodies and listen into their bodies. This episode today is for both men and women so that we can understand how to look after our bodies better with whatever stage we are at in our life. Welcome, Stacey. I'm so thrilled to have you on the Bravery Academy. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to talk to you. I feel like a mini stalker because I have been looking at your work for so many weeks and months now, reading your research, looking at your books and going, this is exciting what you're sharing. You yeah. may not, <laughs> so a little fangirl moment. Um, it may not be your typical podcast to come on because a lot of times we're talking around bravery stories and resilience, but the research that you have I think really helps women understand how they can become their champions in their own body. And that's what I really want to have you um, share with us today. So tell me actually, first of all, where are you from and where are you living right now? I'm originally an army brat from the U.S., but I say San Francisco is home because that's where I kind of ended up after we came back from traveling Europe and stuff. But I currently live in Mount Monganui. Beautiful. Lovely place in New Zealand. So can you tell me, how does stress affect the body? Well, we have two different kinds. We have eustress and distress, right? And the body kind of responds the same way, where we get this whole adrenaline rush, this cortisol increase. And the whole idea is that your body is either going to fight or you're going to run as fast as you can. And it doesn't matter what situation it is, if it's you saw something scary on TV and you have a stress response or your boss is coming and you're like, oh, shit. You know, it doesn't matter. Your body has that same response. And so your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, you become more focused and get a little bit of tunnel vision because it's all in that anticipation of how am I going to survive. But today's age, (laughs) we don't often deal with it well, right? Because we're not going to all of a sudden take off and running or fight to use the additional blood glucose that's come out. 
So we have this surge of, you know, raising blood glucose and their insulin response. And that, if it keeps coming, can perpetuate you know, pre-diabetes diabetes. And we're looking at cardiovascular incidences as well. When you're under chronic stress and you're having the stress load on the heart, it can cause microvascular issues. A lot of chronic health issues come from chronic exposure of stress. And like you said, there's the eustress and the de-stress. So with the good stress... When we're looking at that, we have an everyday life, right? With exercise, sometimes the way that we think about stress can also make it a good stress versus a negative stress. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want you to talk about today is the impact of women when they go through chronic levels of stress. What happens to the body for them particularly? Well, women tend to deal with stress differently than men. We internalize it. We tend to really kind of push where if you're to go to a physician, and you're like, I am so tired. I don't understand what's going on. And they're like, oh, how old are you? You're in your mid-40s and you have a career and you're just overly stressed. So it always presents as that internalization of that anxiety. We're seeing body composition changes or sleep. We're seeing a lot of the mood issues that come with it. And it all has to do with changes in our cortisol levels, our baseline cortisol levels, our neurotransmitters, changes in sympathetic versus parasympathetic systems. And as we get older as women, we already have a really difficult time activating our parasympathetic systems. So we have a, a greater difficulty in getting into that mindfulness and that recovery and that good sleep because we end up being tired but wired primarily through hormonal changes, but also because of our built environment. We're always overstimulated through screens, noise, kids, work, even exercise, right? People tend to try to fit it in. And if they're not fueling appropriately for it or they're increasing their training load too quickly and they're not recovering from it, then it all becomes a sympathetic drive. And this is why we see so many women in their mid-40s with these also hormonal changes that are happening, perimenopause end up in a physician's office and they're told they're highly stressed and here's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor to help with it. Yeah. Instead of really unpacking it and saying, okay, what actually is going on? How am I going to, one, make some lifestyle changes and two, even time management within the day of how you're prioritizing when you're eating with when your body is under the daily life stress. So it's the band-aid option we're trying to move away from, right? I think this is the exactly. big part of what your what your research has sort of led to and the fact that we don't have enough research on a woman, how we both deal with stress. There's some elements of it. There is definitely a more association we know with which conditions women are more likely to be predisposed to, but it's because of systemic effects, like you said, of this autonomic nervous system reaction and moving into that sympathetic fight, flight, freeze, whatever you're going to do with your body and keep flooding, flooding, flooding the body. And so a big part from the work that I do is about breaking that cycle. And I love that you brought up the habit piece because there's so many things that we're doing for the day. And really the crux of what I want to talk about today is the fact that we're not listening to our bodies enough. Absolutely. Because we have been so conditioned to kind of go with the flows, so to speak. Like we've been told how we're supposed to feel when we're on our period. We're told how we're supposed to feel when we first have a kid. We're told how we're supposed to feel if someone criticizes us without actually understanding what that feeling is or what our true response is. And it's just, I mean, historically, we know why this is. We've come from that big, long history of the patriarchal system 
women are just kind of put in that second class in this patriarchal system. But because we know the history, we're now on a point where we can move forward. So part of what I really love doing is empowering women to understand their bodies. Because if we understand what's happening from a hormonal perspective and how our hormones affect us from puberty all the way through postmenopause and all the little things that we think are out of our control are actually part of our physiology. So once you start doing some of that biohacking and understanding, then it empowers you. You're like, oh, yeah, okay, I know I'm not great on making decisions on this day because it always falls on the same day within my cycle. Or what's going on? I'm, you know, I'm 48 and I'm going crazy and I don't know why. Well, it's perimenopause. And so when we start to understand this, then we can be empowered to find the help that we need or actually make those habit changes. And that's the wisdom that I know that you've been sharing for a lot for your work, but also in the research, bringing that together to see that, first of all, it's not just that we are small men, as you talk about a lot with your TEDx talk. I love your TEDx talk. If you haven't listened to that already, people need to get on there and, and just really see the why behind it. I also love your story. Can you share a bit about what got you here in the first place? The fact that you're looking at this differently from just going, we're not small men. Why? Uh, Gosh started all the way back in university days when I was on the crew team or the rowing team and we were training just as hard as the men and we ended up not peaking at the right time included in that as well as we talk about times where the boat was off sync because of our periods and just lots of things that would come up in conversation with the women's crew that the men didn't have so it was seeing this discrepancy but also being one of those young full of themselves late teen kids who's like, why, 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 why is this happening? And going into labs and asking questions and then being a participant in the lab and having my data thrown out because it didn't look like what they thought it was. And then retrospectively going, well, it was thrown out because I was in a high hormone phase of my menstrual cycle where I am completely different from what's going on with the man from a metabolic perspective. So when you start looking and asking all of these questions and then really taking it from that female perspective of why in these textbooks and everything that they're teaching me, they never refer to women. It's always men or they, where I know that there are certain times where I am not being described well in this textbook because I am not an 80 kilo cis white male. So why are these recommendations for protein or carbohydrate, hydration being put to me when I'm a 50 kilo, you know, young 18 year old girl? So there's all these things that really started coming together. And that's kind of what drove my academic and sporting career was, okay, well, we know these things happen to men, but what about women? And then I get questions from my teammates. Well, what about us? How do we do this? So it was more of that falling into and having the availability to ask those questions and have a direction to answer them. How has that been? Has it been challenging coming to push against that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I sit here late 40s, right? And it's just been in the past four or five years that people have been talking about menstrual cycle and research. Whereas when I first started this, and I don't like to do the math, but, you know, 20 some odd years ago, <laughs> And you have from professors saying, well, why do you want to study women? And we don't know enough about men. Or, oh, you know, you're not a real scientist because you're not an MD. You're just a PhD. Why are you asking these questions? So I get pushed back all the time. I still get pushed back because if you're not challenging people's thinking, then it's, you know, people aren't going to push back. But if you start bringing that different point of view and really pushing those questions, people are going to be like, hey, wait a second. 
you asked the questions that I wish someone had asked for me in my 20s because I was going through a very, maybe not the same high level, but I played rep level sport, playing football for my province. And I actually lost my periods pretty much through months and months and months. Yeah, exactly. And it, the, what I've loved about your way you talk about it is that's a health marker that we're not being aware of and going, this isn't okay. And I remember going to the doctors about like 1920, I started university, did my physio career, and I was like, I think this is okay. I'm like one of six kids. There's three other older sisters. We didn't talk about it. We didn't know anything about this. Mm-hmm. So I went to the doctors and I, I'm sharing this story because I guess I think this is part of women understanding that this isn't normal. And the more that we go and question it and find another way. So back then they said to me, well, you don't get your periods regular. You do train at a very high level with your sport. I think you have polystic ovaries and you're probably not going to be able to have kids. Now in my 40s, I have two kids and been learning what that health regulation has meant from that period and not being within the normal 30 days. It was out to like six months sometimes. And then it would hit like an absolute train wreck. And I'd be like, well, why do I feel like this? It was this dysregulation with my body because of my stress response. And I know that's part of my story, which is why I even do the Bravery Academy now, because there's so many moments of our life that we need to learn about how do we manage this and, and regulate the system. So physical pressure, right, from at that sporting level, which obviously you were under at that age, and many of your female athletes would have been under too. And that nutritional impact on our hormones is such a big part that even now we're still not talking around in a holistic way. Exactly. And the other thing that's being really left out of the whole REDS research is the sociocultural aspect, right? What environment are people in? How did they grow up? I mean, especially here in New Zealand, you had the Pacifica culture and it's really rude not to eat all the food that's put in front of you. But from a high perspective if you're an elite athlete and it's completely opposite of what your dietitian allied sports staff is telling you to do you have this big push pull right so then you'll go back to the team environment and fall into low energy availability and you might lose your period but it's this whole how did you grow up what does food mean to you versus what does it mean from a sports science point those conversations aren't being had so there's this huge misstep of treatment options because people aren't looking at the individual from their cultural background, how they grew up, how they came into sport, what are their beliefs, and how does that tie in to what the sport science is? And that's leading into the psychological stress, right? And then the behavioral choices and the habits around that. So can we talk about that? Like, what does it mean to actually listen to your cycle and your body? Yeah, so, I mean, every woman's different, right? And we know that women have maybe two or three anovulatory cycles uh, a year. And Yesterday, a colleague posted the supplementary material that had 28 different menstrual cycles across this big six-month project. Oh, interesting. I would love to put that in the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah. It is graphically represented. And you could see where the surge of LH was versus estrogen and how short and long all the follicular phases were. So although we have like general ideas of what happens in the low hormone phase where your body's more resilient to stress, we see better HRV, we see better ability to access carbohydrate, you know, better immunity. If we don't understand our own unique cycle, we don't know exactly how the high hormone affects us or where our LH and estrogen surge and ovulation, how that might affect us. We know from the general scope how our bodies respond, but we need to be able to track and understand our own cycle. So if, say, day 28, you always feel like you're on fire the day before your period starts, right? 
in general scope, people are expecting you to feel like shit. Yeah. But you know, you feel fantastic. So make that day work for you. But the flip side of it is maybe every day 23 in your cycle, you feel flat, lethargic, can't make decisions. And if you don't know that, then you're going to, is it allergies? Did I sleep well? Was it something my boss said? Did I not get a good night's sleep? But it's the consistency of your own patterns within your own cycle that allow you to understand the days that you can push hard and days that you pull back. And it's not just from a physical scope either. We have a lot of CEOs who do the same thing. So they know like, oh, I always feel really not on my game on day 12. So I'm not going to schedule really important meetings on that day, right? So we can use it through all different aspects of our life. But the first and foremost thing is we have to understand how our own hormone profiles affect us. While it's not a one-size-fits-all model, we do have this kind of ebb and flow with it. Obviously, we're going to have changes with that resiliency. And I like the fact that you brought that up because there are times when you feel bulletproof in your period in that cycle. And there are times where you're like, I just want to go and sleep and crawl into a cave. And I I think one of the easiest ways of someone describing to me was the seasons that every month you have those seasons coming in, winter, spring, summer, and autumn, fall. Um, And if you can learn to understand what those seasons mean for you, that there is some replenishment. But actually, sometimes you can still at that winter time when your period's there, you can still push through depending on where your body recovers. And just because you're bleeding doesn't mean that the world has to stop. Yeah. And that's the biggest myth I think that's out there because we've been all been put in this box that when you're bleeding, you're a delicate flower. And we see this from lots of different cultures, third world cultures still having it where women have menstrual tents, right? And they're shunned away from everyone else because they're bleeding and, oh my gosh, it's a very unsafe time for women. But from a physiological perspective and an immune perspective, your body's on fire to fight. So we have to be able to remove that continuous chatter that is so ingrained in our society. Of course, if you have heavy bleeding, cramping, that's a different story. But in general, you shouldn't let the bleed phase affect the way that you think or move or what you want to do. I love that. So for someone to get more comfortable with this, tracking over time, their cycle, their moods, and there's some really great apps out there to do that, right? To make it easy. This might sort of sound like we're really focusing on females. I think men should be listening to this episode too, because actually you've got women in your life. And if you can understand that, you know when to push, when to nurture, because we need that as well as part of our hormones, the oxytocin release to feel safe, to feel supported, to feel like we can bounce back as well. Yeah, absolutely. It shouldn't just be a female-oriented conversation. My husband's behind a lot of the stuff in the company, so he's very well-versed. But sometimes I go to conferences and I ask, Like, how many people say the word period on a regular basis? And rarely do I get all the men raising their hands. So I'm like, if you don't, then do you not have a mother or a sister or a partner or a daughter? You should be able to say that word without flinching because it's just part of the natural human process. Absolutely. As a mother coming into this next stage of like, how do I educate around this? How do we now impart this knowledge to the next generation to help them understand that this is a superpower and honor that period? Yeah, you know, because of the World Cup's going on here. Yeah. I've been very interested to see a lot of the conversations in the newspaper around it has been about menstrual cycle. There was a front page ad in the Herald that was put out by Eve that was like, a red card should be a strong point. Your period is a strong point. And I was like, wow, front page paper, this wouldn't have happened even three years ago. So we're starting to see those conversations opening up. 
But when you're talking to like girls who are 10, 11, 12, they are still a little bit skittish. Mm -hmm. I'm different because my daughter has me as mom, right? Mm -hmm. So her friends will ask her to ask me questions. But they're still nervous because they understand that period's coming and they're all nervous. And so like, how do you get over that? And then the boys that are surrounding them, they have no idea. And there's no education around it. So I think what we should try to push, because we are a small society in New Zealand, is one of the things they did in the UK in a small school is they had teenage girls and their best friends who were boys all come into a room. And they were very safe in that room. And the girls expressed what it was like to have a menstrual cycle. And the fears they had when they got their period, like, are they going to bleed through? Is there enough sanitary products around? And how they felt with cramping and that kind of stuff. And their friends who were guys totally understood it now. And because they had that personal connection, they were able to support their friends and their friends' friends outside of it. So the tabooness around the menstrual cycle dissipated in that school. It's just amazing to see the results of these case studies that are coming out. That's a huge one. That first period, that first cycle, and the not knowing, the fear around it. I thought I was dying yeah. of mine. And I was quite late too. So I was like, oh, is this even going to happen? What does it look like? And yeah. it's such a scary process. So then as you go through those next stages into your sort of 20s and out of those teenage years, how can women in their 20s learn to listen into their body better? Yeah, and then the other thing that comes on is there's a metabolic shift that happens around 19, 20 years old where metabolism starts to slow down because they're not growing anymore. So they're out of the, you know, the endocrine teenage rapid growth. So metabolism settles. So weight comes on. Yeah. And people are like, oh my gosh, it's associated to work, university, stress. Yes. But also we have to pay attention to the fact that our bodies have changed. We have a different metabolic rate, so we have to look at nutrition differently. We have to look at exercise differently. We have to look at sleep. So if we, again, are tracking our cycle, we start to see perturbations in it, then we can start to either say, oh, we need to pull back because my cycles are getting longer and longer, and that's a sign of high stress. Or if we're having short cycles of really heavy bleeding, then we know that that's more of a luteal phase defect or some kind of issue with ovulation. And that's something that should be checked out. So again, it comes back to the tracking. And teenage years are, are really irregular, especially if you start menstruating after the age of 13. But once you hit that 18, 19, 20 time period, they should be pretty regular and pretty normal for you. And the other thing that's not really talked about is your actual bleed pattern. Like, yeah. what does your bleed pattern look like? People are like, oh, you know, it's about seven days. Now, what does it look like? Do you have two days of heavy bleeding and then spotting and then light bleeding? Or what's going on in those first four to five days? Because if you start seeing changes there, then that's another indication. Something's going on with it. One of the things that I love that you talk about is around the tight exercise we should be doing at that stage. And resistance training, even then, should be incorporated. Yep. Women get so worried about this feeling of like, we're going to get too big. And actually, this conditioning in the body is what we're needing. Can you speak about that and why yeah. what you've seen? I saw this brilliant inter, uh, Instagram clip from a top strength and conditioning coach. And he goes, I'm so tired of women coming to me and saying, I don't want to do resistance training because I don't want to get bulky. He's like, now, when you cross a parking lot and get in your car, do you become a NASCAR driver? No. You don't. It takes years and years of training and proper nutrition to become that NASCAR driver. So in order to actually get 
any kind of bulk. It takes years and years of training and proper nutrition. And it's just that whole misconception that if you lift weights, you're going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was on roids. But it doesn't happen. Our physiology is not one that's going to put on a whole bunch of muscle mass. When we're in our 20s and 30s, we can get away with doing lighter weight. We can get away with doing higher reps, some of the toning, the boot camp type stuff. But resistance training is so critical, especially now in the modern age where we don't push and pull and move things. We sit and we're looking at screens, we're using computers, we're not on the farm doing stuff. So we need resistance training more than we need that cardiovascular work. We need that lean mass. We need the resistance on the bone in order to have strong bone. We also see resistance training really improves the neural pathway. So it helps attenuate dementia and Alzheimer risks. It changes our gut microbiome to be less obesogenic and more geared towards lean mass and lean mass development. So if people are like, I don't want to exercise, it's like, if you're doing proper strength training, you're not going to get all sweaty. You're not going to like leave feeling exhausted. You're going to feel strong. You're going to leave feeling like you worked, but you're not going to leave feeling completely exhausted. So again, it's that nuance and, and understanding those cultural differences. And even if you go to a gym, unfortunately, you walk in as a woman and you fill out the form. And they're like, okay, how much weight do you want to lose? Here's a cardio machine. Right? But as a guy, they're like, oh, okay, here's all the strength stuff. And I, know, I don't think you want a personal trainer. But if you do, here's this guy who's going to teach you how to do a little bit. It's like, why are we being divided like that? And why is the squat rack in very back of the gym and really scary looking because you have to walk through all the machines to get to it. And the cardiovascular stuff is always in. So it's not a way to be inviting to me. So we just have to own it and be like, you know what? I'm going to get strong. I want to be strong, not only for all the things that I do now, but so when I'm 80 or 90 years old, I can still be living independently. And I don't have to run the risk of being homebound in a chair because I have dementia and I can't move. There's so many reasons why to do it, but I think we also hear from women there's so many barriers. So like you said, it's the environment can be a barrier. It can be a lack of knowledge can be a barrier. And I think that's also, again, a challenge for so many places like, like gym training or environments where you'd go into group coaching and group training to make it actually accessible and amenable for women. And that is always there. It's not. And it's um, like, I feel comfortable in the weight room because I've been going in since high school. Mm-hmm. One of my friend's brothers was into bodybuilding and she started training with them and she got biceps. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I want to get stronger for running. So, you know, and then I've seen the evolution within the gyms change. I used to be the only girl in the back with a squat rack and now you can't even get a squat rack. So all of those things are great and they're changing, but there needs to be this intermediate still of someone who is in their mid to late 40s, maybe early 50s, who understands they really need to start resistance training, but they don't want to go to the gym and pick up a barbell. They've never done it. And in the back of their head, they're always like, I should be doing cardio. I should be doing cardio. Calories in, calories out, right? So how do we change that? And so that's the question I'm still trying to answer. How do we get that intermediate bridge to make resistance training more comfortable, more accessible, especially to those of us who grew up in that whole culture of supermodels and calories in, calories out, fat burning, lots and lots of volume, and none of that works. It just drives cortisol up. It makes you tired, stressed, put on body fat. And 
you have to put in that resistance. It's a real paradigm shift, right? A mindset shift around the way that we think about this. Probably about three years ago, I did jiu-jitsu was one of my things to try. Yeah. As you do when you're hitting almost 40, you like try some martial art. And one of the things that I really felt with that though, I wasn't strong enough in my muscles to keep doing it. That actually was one of my catalysts to be like, no, I'm going to push harder in the gym training, even though I dabbled through my life. And I think that's the element of getting the right coaches on board is probably one of the biggest pieces, surrounding yourself with an environment that socially feels good to you. The reason why I say about the jiu-jitsu piece and that strengthening for me was this mindset shift around, it's not a quick fix. Our bodies are not designed to have a six to eight week program. This is a a two to three year process that we all need to go under to actually reprogram the nervous system to make it feel like it's got the energy tank back up. And you're actually looking at all those factors around it, like your sleep, like your relationships, like your social circles, to actually look what well-being is. So for me, what I'm hearing from you is that resistance training is a very key puzzle piece for women and men, but women, we need to be doing more of this. And as we get older, it becomes even more and more important. And I say that as being a long-time endurance athlete. Like, yeah. yeah, I dabbled in the gym because of my friend, like I was saying, in high school, and it was fun. But I was always a runner, and then I got into Ironman, and then I got into Xterra. I was a professional bike racer. So like long-time endurance athlete. And it got to a point where it's like my body keeps breaking down. I really need to get back in the gym. I need to, and if I don't get in the gym, I break. And so when we're talking about the fragility of physiology and the fragility of the body, soft tissues respond, even the joint, you know, the tendons, the ligaments, they respond to resistance training to make your body more resilient, to be able to pick up the volume of running or to step off a curb and not break. And we start talking about the injury prevention aspect, as well as what are you doing now to enhance your life? This is where we start to see people go, oh, I get it. Okay, I get it. It's not about being bulky and spending hours and hours in the gym all day, all the time. So, yeah, more education. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors law enforcement, 
and especially actual DV survivors, give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. You've got some amazing books, one particularly focused on menopause. So tell me the title of that one again. Next Layla, you're kicking ass and killing it through menopause and beyond. Have you noticed how many more conversations and podcasts and stories are coming up around menopause right now? Yes, I have. But when we look at the conversations that are like in stuff or the Herald or coming from overseas, they all have a negative spin on them. And this is what frustrates me. They're trying to disempower women through menopause, where women are talking about it, but they're talking about it all the negative scope. I have bad hot flashes. I can't sleep, but no one's giving the solution. Because unfortunately, the solution that's being talked about is menopause hormone therapy. That's a tool in the toolbox, but it is not the solution. And that stems from a lot of stuff that was happening in the UK and a very vocal doctor who started calling menopause female hormone deficiency syndrome. It's like, no, it's not a deficiency. It's a natural part of aging. So I'm hopeful that the narrative is changing, but it's really hard to read these articles and be like, where's the solution? If I read this and didn't know what I know, I would be very scared about menopause. So there are so many people who go through it without too many issues. Yeah. And we have other cultures who don't even have a word for menopause because it's a westernized concept that women are old. And if you look even like in media, you see movies, you'll have someone like, you know, let's look at Tom Cruise and his new Mission Impossible, right? He's in his mid-50s, mid to late 50s. And his co-worker is still like in her 20s, right? Yeah. And it's like women always get aged out once they pass their 30s, but the men just keep getting the high profile roles regardless of age. So the whole menopause idea is that women are old. And so people are afraid to go through it because they don't want to be deemed as being old. So when we talk about menopause, is actually just one point of time on the calendar that marks 12 months of no menstrual period. So no periods. So we say it's a birthday for the rest of your life. We should celebrate it. The time before that is perimenopause, and the time after that is postmenopause. Now, the thing about perimenopause is you can't definitively say when it starts, because sometimes women in their mid-30s are starting to have issues, and sometimes it's not until their very late 40s, almost 50, when they're like, hey, what's going on? But what's happening in perimenopause is we're starting to get changes in the ratios of estrogen and progesterone. So we might have more and more in ovulatory cycles. We don't have as much progesterone. Um, we're also starting to see a down regulation of a lot of our estrogen and progesterone receptors because those ratios are changing. And we know that about the three to four years before the actual one point in time menopause is where the symptomology is the worst, where we start to see that huge shift in body composition change. We see a huge shift in brain function, mood, anxiety, motivation ability to withstand stress. And that is the conversations that we're seeing where people are like menopause and they're really talking about late perimenopause. So what's happening in that late perimenopause state is you are having ovarian wind down. So if we think about puberty and all the stuff we talked about first, where girls are really afraid about their first period and all the body changes that happen leading into that, where you know, their hips widen, their shoulders widen, they put on um, a little bit more belly fat, their center of gravity changes, so they don't feel right running, and they feel a little gangly, might drop out of sport, and then they get their period. 
Well, now we're on the other end where things are winding down. And so we do have this body composition changes because those hormones affect every system in our, in our body. And they're very tightly tied to appetite regulation, blood glucose regulation, muscle protein synthesis, hypothalamus function. So how we control our temperature is very tightly tied to serotonin and dopamine. So if we start having these changes in these ratios, it's not surprising that women are like, what the hell is going on? Because no one tells them that, you know, when you have an episode of estrogen dominance because you didn't ovulate, you're going to have this huge rush of serotonin because estrogen really affects serotonin receptors, hypersensitizes them. And then when the estrogen drops, boom, serotonin dump. And you get this immediate, like, anxious, depressed, what the hell feeling. No one tells people that. So they think that something's wrong with them. Well, they're experiencing it, but they don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. And someone's like, oh, it's just because of your lifestyle. And here you have to take these drugs or you should try to get more sleep. But sleep's a big issue too, because now you're having temperature changes, hypothalamic changes. You're not producing as much dopamine. You're having issues with melatonin. So you can't get into good sleep architecture. You can't get into that slow wave sleep. You're very sympathetically driven. So you can't get into that parasympathetic side of things. Um, yeah, so those are all the issues, but now I can tell you solutions. So we know there are a few key factors that really can exacerbate menopausal symptoms. One is fitness level and obesity. So if you're not very fit and you tend to be overweight to obese, there is a higher incidence of metabolic issues, you know, higher blood glucose, insulin resistance, more hot flashes, poor sleep quality. When we start looking at high stress, because our baseline set point of cortisol has become elevated from this point, because our bodies themselves are under stress with changes in hormone ratios and bias responses to that and changes in that microbiome, because if we have differences in our hormone ratios, then we don't need as many of the gut bugs to actually you know, do something with this conjugated hormones that come into the gut. So we start losing the diversity, which then feeds important effects sympathetic drive, it affects BDNF. So we're having those changes and the sleep issues. And so if we're highly stressed, we elevated cortisol, changes in gut microbiome, it increases that sympathetic drive and people are walking around so tired, so wired and can't get out of it. Yeah. And that's the crux of it. So solutions, talk to me about the solutions that women are just waiting to hear. And I'm sure partners are waiting to hear so they can go, here we are. This is how you get there. Yeah. <laughs> So like I said, menopause hormone therapy is a tool in the toolbox, but it's not the first port of call. If you're having like really, really severe symptomology, hot flashes, night sweats, you can't sleep, you're just all over the show, definitely a time place to have a conversation with your GP about it. But for most, there are things that we do first. We look at creating an external stress that's going to make our bodies adapt the way our bodies used to adapt with hormones working. So the first thing is exercise. What kind of exercise is really, really important at this point in time? So we've talked about resistance training, but when we get to peri and postmenopause, we need to do power-based resistance training. So this is heavy lifting. This is the, you know, we call it the three to five. Three to five exercises, three to five sets, three to five minutes recovery in between. And you're lifting at 80% or plus one rep max. So it is heavy work because it's a central nervous system driven activity. 
Because when we're looking at what estrogen does to muscle tissue and lean mass, it's responsible for stimulating our basal cell or satellite cell. It's responsible for how tight myosin binds to actin, so how strong a muscle contraction we have. And it's also responsible for how much acetylcholine, which is our, you know, our key neurotransmitter that jumps from the nerve to the muscle to create that muscle fiber innervation. So when we start to lose estrogen or changes in ratios, that whole system starts to fail. This is why women aren't very strong and they lose their power and their speed. Heavy resistance training is that central nervous system response. And now the body's like, oh, wait a second. The nerves are telling me I need to be able to create a very fast muscle fiber contraction and I need to have more in lean mass and I need to be able to develop this power. So I'm doing it without estrogen. We look at the other spectrum of what do we do for metabolic health and really removing the increase in that visceral or that abdominal adiposity, the menopause. Resistance training for one, because then there becomes this crosstalk between the muscle and the enzyme responsible for putting on visceral fat. So the muscle is like, we don't need this fat. Just clarifying for that, that's the, the belly fat people. That's the deep belly yeah. fat. Yeah. Deep belly fat's hanging around that you're like, I just need to get rid of it. But so I'm going to try 10,000 sit-ups and I'm going to do all the cardio. And it makes it worse because when you start doing a lot of cardio, you get into this moderate intensity and that moderate intensity signals the body to elevate cortisol and non body. So we look at, okay, we do that resistance training and then we have to do true high intensity work. I'm not talking about F45, I'm not talking about CrossFit. I'm not talking about all these supposed hit classes. I'm about true high intensity where you're doing sprint interval training or you're doing true hit, which is one to four minutes of 80 to 100% of your max and you have variable recovery. Because the goal here is these are very strong stimuli that are going to improve cardiovascular health, but also going to cause epigenetic changes within the muscle to pull glucose in without insulin because we become more insulin resistant as we get older. And it also, again, signals that we don't need the extra body fat. We also see changes in gut microbiome where we're doing that high intensity, that true high intensity work. It stimulates more diversity in the gut microbiome and switches the ratio of the obesogenic phyla to, again, the lean phyla. So we look at how are we doing these external stressors that's going to benefit our body. It's not about spending lots of time. It's about quality. And people are like, I don't go to the gym. How do I do sprint interval training? Well, you have stairs. You can run upstairs. If not, and you're a walker, you're not a runner. Because sprint interval training doesn't mean running. It just means going hard as you can in any mode. Swimming, cycling, running, walking, in, you know, battle ropes. So plyometrics fall into all of that. So it's at high-end stress to create those adaptations. Yeah. What I like as well is you're, there is a bridge between that. Like someone might look at this and go, I can't do the high-end lifts of big squats and things. It doesn't have to be that. And you don't no. have to go and do a two to four-hour walk to lose the fat as well. It's like it's actually about you can you need to do smaller and less of that to actually be more efficient and effective. Yes, I had a PhD student who just graduated in May and she was finishing up in Denmark and they did this really cool study. And I always tell people that if you can afford just one session with a physio who understands body movement, get them to assess how you are moving because I don't want anyone to go in and start lifting heavy with poor mechanics. 
some of my, I call everyone who exercises on purpose an athlete. I love that. So some of my older athletes took two to four months to phase into lifting heavy, but it's not a training block, right? We're not talking about heavy lifting as a training block. We're looking at it as the eye to, this is what I'm going to do to maintain my quality of life for the rest of my life. So it's going to take some time to get in there. And you might find that a 15 kilo bar is 80% of your one rep max. And you might be able to lift it properly for two reps. That's a great strength. That's fantastic because it's still that stress to your body. And you build on it just like any other. One of the things that I have personally found, and again, this is about a lot of the misinformation that's out there around women's body types, but particularly around food and nutrition and one around fasting. So many of the trends that are out there this one drives me a little bit mad, a little bit me, mad. Me too. Can you Fasting speak and to it? Fasting and keto, both of them drive me absolutely crazy. So when we look at the science, right? I'm a scientist, so we look at the science. We now see new evidence that shows that if you delay your eating in the morning and you don't start eating food till 11 a.m. or after, you have a higher predisposition to obesity. And cardiovascular issues, where we okay, see women. Pour us on that again, because that is such a big thing for, for people to hear, but women particularly. Exactly. And then when we see that people who are eating earlier in the day and then they wind down their eating, so they're not having massive amount of calories towards the end of the day, they maintain lean mass, they have better sleep quality, all their cardio metabolic risk factors go down. And it's really apparent in women. So when we look, Inherently at women and fasting from a sex difference, women are already set up to be metabolically flexible in the fact that our liver has some estrogen receptors in there and it's also very sensitive to glucose. So when glucose starts to go down, then the liver, you know, spits out and breaks down some glycogen. And we use that and then it starts to go down again. And then the liver sends signals and estrogen receptor sends signals. And then it's like, hey, wait a second. We can't even use fatty acids. So we are like in a quandary here. So all these people were like, I'm going to do fasted and I'm do big fasts and I might do fasted training to improve my metabolic flexibility. Doesn't work in women. It's counter. It's counterintuitive to the body for this. And when we look from that historical perspective, it is because in the hunter-gatherer days when there was a low food, the response for the female body was to put on a whole bunch of fat and to wind down metabolic rate so that she didn't need calories because the male of the species and the kids needed the calories to continue survival of the species. So when people are like, oh, I want to fast for all these great health outcomes, like what health outcomes? Because the data that's coming out is based on men. If we look at cognitive focus, that's you know male data. We look at better blood glucose control, male data. We look at better parasympathetic responses, male data. We look at the data on women and it's the opposite. We see pre-diabetics becoming diabetic. We see more of a sympathetic drive. We see less autophagy because the body's under severe stress. But if you do want to like engage in fasting, then stop eating after dinner and then have breakfast and then sleep without a full belly so that your body can actually get into rest, digest, and parasympathetic. And then the other part of that, I guess, is understanding that fueling of the body and the importance of protein behind that. 
and how so important. Yeah. So important. Yeah. So the current recommendation for protein intake for sedentary women is actually based on eight-year-old sedentary men. So people are like, what? what? How did that happen? Because when people, you know, are trying to figure out how much protein and nitrogen balance, they're like, hey, an 80-year-old sedentary man has about the same amount of lean mass as a 20-year-old sedentary woman. So what's the nitrogen balance? Okay, well, that's going to be the recommendation. But now we have real ways of looking and we're looking at sedentary women. They need that 1.6 grams per kilo. And this we know for sure across the day, right? So 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, evenly divided. So it's like palm size protein in every meal, a little bit of protein, all little snacks. And the biggest telling was a study that came out looking at sedentary women, no exercise. And they were all eating about that 0.8 grams per kilo. And they pumped one, yeah, which is the general, like what most people are eating. They bumped, slapped the group up to 1.6. And then the other people were just status quo. Over the course of 12 weeks, the higher protein intake group completely recomped their body without exercise. So we see the importance of protein. So it's not just for, you know, oh, I have to eat protein because someone told me, because your body needs it, not only for lean mass development, but for neural aspects, for gut health, for all of these things. And then when you start doing, endurance exercise versus strength training people like oh well if i'm endurance exercise i don't need protein yes you do you're going through a complete fuel depletion muscle ripping type which is different from strength training but you need that protein for reparation and you need that protein for lean mass development and as we get older as women we become anabolically resistant to both food and exercise So we need that higher dose of protein to stimulate muscle protein development. As I was saying, central nervous system plus protein means lean mass. So it's really looking at the foundation for it. We really want women to see that resistance training is so important and key. However, if you haven't got this basic building block of what you're putting in and that protein, you can't get out the results that you need as well. Is there anything that you take away just for the everyday woman that they could be doing, apart from what we've talked about already, as simple little biohacks? Yeah, I always think there are three key things that we want you to do. One is know your hormone profile, be it naturally cycling on any kind of hormone contraception. If you're on an IUD, you can still track with temperature, basal body temperature, understand. If you're perimenopause, really understanding how your cycle is changing. Is it the bleed pattern that's changing? Is it the length? So just knowing that. So that's the first thing, tracking that. Sleep, big, huge thing, because you'll start to see sleep perturbations across your hormone profile too. So if you have a really bad night's sleep, it might not be because of stuff that you've done, but because of your hormone profile. So that's why it's really important. So those two things are big. And then the other really big thing is having breakfast. Because if we have breakfast and it doesn't have to be massive and it's not coffee, because coffee's not a food. We have breakfast that has some good protein in it. It sets the whole body up for better choices throughout the day. And we see this in research. When people are having breakfast with protein in it, then it sets even heal energy for the rest of the day and they can make better choices. So those are the three things I'd like people to start with. And then we add in the you know mindfulness piece, the movement piece, the hydration piece. 
have their very key, simple, but really effective tools. Exactly. See, how do people work with you, find out about you? I know you've got some amazing resources from, even just as your Instagram page, you share a lot of amazing resources on there. So thank you for that. I was watching one of your sleep things today going, oh, so simple. People need to come back to this. So the Instagram at Dr. Stacey Sims. And then you've got two books. Again, what I love about your books is they're not just for athletes. And I'll put links into the show notes for them as well. Yeah. So the first one we wrote was Aurora, and that was across a woman's lifespan. Explains like training, nutrition, sex differences across the lifespan. And then the one that we wrote because of so much feedback from the first one, is there's a one chapter on menopause and all these people are like, well, what? I need more information. So we wrote Next Level. And Next Level is all about peri and post-menopause. And it also includes surgical menopause because there are so many women who unfortunately go through surgical menopause. So it explains what's happening in the body, what you can do to take control, really. So it's empowering women. Talks about things like adaptogens and medicinal mushrooms versus SSRIs and menopause prevent therapy, giving you all the things to make your own choices then case studies and that kind of stuff. And then if you go to the website, then we have little courses, micro learnings that are about an hour. And then we also have big courses that goes into deep dive in different aspects of women's lives. So start simple and go from there. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you, Stacey, so much for your time and your wisdom. I'd love to have you back because I know you're a wealth of knowledge, but you are doing amazing work. And thank you for being brave and all the things that you're doing. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Wow, what an episode. I have just loved talking to Dr. Stacey. Her knowledge around the body and the woman's health is phenomenal, and she is shifting the paradigm on how we should be dealing with our bodies at every stage of our life. If you've loved this episode of the podcast, please go on to our socials and subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. Share the message because it makes a big difference for others to understand how every day they can be a little bit braver. 